Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 136 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? You have not melted. That is so nice to see. I have not melted. I am way more tan than I've ever wanted to be in my life. It's gross. Oh, yeah, because you're like, I just want to be pale. I do just want to be I want to be a creature of the night. Creature of the night. And yet lately I've been a creature of the day. I know. You've been going out a bunch. Um, We had, there's just been a bunch of like life stuff happening. So that's a bunch of things. And then it was pride. Yes. So uh, Travis came to town and sister Sarah was in town. Love it. And we hung out at pride. We had a plan. Okay. To have our instruments in case there were loud protesters at Pride, which there have been protesters at some of the queer-friendly events right. in town. And so, like, the idea being that the Wrong Notes pet band that I do for Homegrown mm-hmm. was going to be on call to play in front of these people right? if that was needed. Right. You know? And then the best part of this was there were no loud protesters. There were, as far as I saw, no protesters at all. <gasps> That is so good. Usually there's that one dude that stands there with the sign saying that we're all going to hell for various reasons. Like they have this Mm. sign where it's like, you will go to hell if, and then in the smallest print, it lists like 50 reasons, everything from like adultery and murder, like the typical stuff all the way down to like, if you smoke marijuana. I know. Yeah. He's really, (laughs) he's, he's just condemning everyone. Yeah. And he stands there. And he never says anything. So I'd already straight up said, you know, if this this guy's there, (laughs) if this guy's there, we'll just leave it. He never talks to anybody. He just stands there with the sign. He's just, and he's he's never like at the actual event. He's always right outside of the event. So it's like, eh, but he wasn't even there this year. And I take it. I think that it's because it was hot as balls and nobody (laughs) wanted to be outside. It was so hot. I, I got to say, outside of the uh, the building for women, those protesters, they'll be out there, rain or shine, true. snow, sleet. But uh, I'm glad that the, uh, the anti-gays were- They too, left pride alone. They just left it alone. That's so good. But yeah, it was ungodly hot. Yeah, it was gross. Uh, we watched as, uh, for those who are not local, Bayfront has a giant stage, and that's where the drag performers and the musicians and everybody performs. Mm-hmm. And we watched the crowd shift while watching the shows oh, to move along with the, the shadow. <laughs> so, like at one point, that's so cute. At one point, there's like a drag show going on, and like there's a good third of the stage that people are not in front of because nobody wants to stand in the sun, direct sunlight. They're yep. like, no, way Mm-mm. less, way less drunk people. Because nope. nobody you're dehydrated. You're dehydrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good pride, fun pride, no protesters. Got to just hang out instead of having to play my tuba. Was a little hot, but still had fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then yesterday I dipped to Thorstock for a little bit. Oh, you got to go. Just for just for a few hours. Got to see Brianne Marie play and then see Thor play. Mm-hmm. And then uh, came back and watched the final drag show of Pride at the main, and awesome had a great time, and it was a good weekend. Just very sweaty. I I so I specifically sweaty. wore dark colors so that people would not see my sweat stains as bad. So so hot. It's <laughs> been so hot. How are you doing? 
Um, well, the uh, health saga continues, mm-hmm. which is why I didn't go to Pride is because I felt just awful all weekend. The heat probably didn't help. Yeah. Uh, I've been drinking a lot of water, though, and I've been tweeting out reminders that everyone else should do the same. Hydrate before you dehydrate. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the most recent update, though, is my doctor I went on in on Friday. They took a bunch of blood. You know how much I love needles. That was great. That was so great. Uh, I will say, though, that I think all the uh, exposure therapy is helping with how many times I've been stuck by needles because I barely even freaked out a little bit. <laughs> it was nice. I'm so proud. I didn't even have to give like the, I know I'm a 37-year-old woman and I know I'm acting like a baby. I didn't even have to because I didn't act like a baby. I was just like, I don't like needles. I need to lay down. And and then I was like, eee! And then it was over, and I was like, cool. I didn't think too much about it. I was just like, okay, I guess, you know, here we go. <laughs> I, I'm I'm like a proud mama over here. You should be. <laughs> uh, but apparently, though, the next step to figure out fully what is wrong with me is to do two weeks gluten-free. Have fun. And then two weeks dairy-free. Have fun. Uh, not the same two weeks. So I have a whole month of just having a fucked up what I can eat now okay dairy-free won't be that hard for you though because you're already vegetarian so you're basically just going to be going vegan for a while yes but cheese you can do it I eat pizza five to nine times a week Luce has an amazing vegan cheese I know I know and I and I do like that and However, I've been looking more into the gluten-free aspect of it because mm-hmm. I've I've naturally had weeks where I don't eat as much cheese and I still feel gross. Uh, and I think every single symptom that I have can be explained by a gluten intolerance. Not celiac disease, obviously, but like a just a small intolerance. So, Luce I has know. amazing gluten-free shells. I- they have amazing gluten-free everything and I'm so glad that they're like so close to my work and that's where I order my most of my pizza from anyway (laughs) but also I'm just like oh a lot of people who do like gluten-free they also have the ability to eat meat yeah as like a substitute and I don't I don't do that so bread and pizza and noodles is literally my diet and has been since I was a wee child so uh, does I'm, rice have gluten? No, it doesn't. Rice noodles are great. I eat rice noodles all the time. Okay, I'll have to look into that. I've definitely had the gluten-free noodles, and they make me sad. No, rice noodles, I'm rice telling noodles? you. And they okay. have varying different types, just like other pasta does. So, Okay, okay, I'm feeling a little bit better about this. Because- I'm going to send you some good vegetarian. I have like a TikToker I follow that posts a lot of... um like recipes mm-hmm. and uh she does primarily asian food oh okay that, so it's a lot of rice noodles and then she does even if she's cooking something with meat she might say you can do this if you're vegetarian yes. like so there's some options okay. okay okay i i'm feeling a little bit better about this because i was sitting here thinking okay do i want to just find out that it's a gluten intolerance and then i just know exactly what it is i can cut it out and i can feel better or do i just want to keep being able to eat gluten but also have to suffer longer until we can figure out what it is that makes me feel bad. So here's the thing. The reason I just kept saying mm. have fun yeah. is because I have done this. It's because I have the ibs. Yes. And in order to figure out, there is no test for the ibs. 
Right. You just have to cut out food until you figure out what's wrong and yeah. what makes it worse. And you know what I found out? There are some foods that are worth the ibs. Yeah. Yeah. I I can imagine pizza's one of them. <laughs> That's how You'll I just feel. have to tone it down a bit. Yeah. It's not <laughs> not pizza once a day for an entire week. There you Maybe go. Maybe once every two weeks. <laughs> Unless it's the cauliflower crust pizza. And then you're golden. <laughs> and then I'm golden. <laughs> Health stuff, man. Am it's I right? so much fun. <laughs> uh, we should probably uh, crack on into it, though. Let's get it. You got a story to tell me. Yeah, yeah. I was like, it's coming. It's coming, I swear. It's a difficult can today. You had as much problem with that can as I had with this bottle. I, th- I think it was the angle. <laughs> and now it's time for a story. <laughs> So I brought us back to the Midwest, like close, close Midwest okay. this week. Okay. Because I decided to go Wisconsin. Wisconsin. We went Wisconsin this week. All right. So, located at 100 High Avenue in Oshkosh is the Grand Oshkosh, uh, which is some, it's got a like, it's been renamed a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. All of the names people still know it by all involve the Grand. So they either call it the Grand or the Grand Oshkosh or the Grand Opera House because that was its original name. Oh, what what does what is an Oshkosh? What do you know? What's in Oshkosh? No, what is Oshkosh? Like what does that word mean? I don't know. Let's find out. Isn't there also Oshkosh like, Bagosh? Yeah, that's a little kid clothing brand, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's because of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yeah, so because they also have like, if I remember the label for Oshkosh clothing having a little plane on it, and one of the biggest events in Oshkosh is they have like a an air show, a, a giant sort. air show. Okay. Yeah. Oshkosh is a city and county on. Oshkosh is a city in and the county seat of Winnebago County, Wisconsin. Population of 66,000 in 2020. Ninth largest city in Wisconsin. Just tell me what the name means. Wait, is that where Winnebago's come from? Wisconsin? I have no idea about that. Let me just keep asking you things. You have to (laughs) Google. Oshkosh was named for Menominee Chief Oshkosh. Not a misspelling according to visitoshkosh.com, whose name meant claw, and it was Ojibwe. Okay. I mean, I assumed it was some sort of indigenous name. Um, I just wanted to know. Okay. So it's named after a chief. And Oshkosh Bagosh, or like that was a shortened version because it used to be like Oshkosh Bagosh, is a brand of children's apparel named after the city in Wisconsin. And where do Winnebago's come from? Yay, I get answers to both. <laughs> so Winnebago's generally, it doesn't say like. Uh, from Wisconsin. No, it's uh, it was in 1960. Uh, Modernistic was the name and it became Winnebago Industries, named after the river that flows through Forest County and the Iowa County where the company was born. And uh, the... Tribe of Indigenous People is Ho-Chunk or Winnebago, as they are commonly called in Wisconsin and Illinois. Wow. So we just really appropriated that name to talk about campers. It's what it looks like. Cool. Uh, I do know that the Ho-Chunk, if you ever have, if anybody has any interest in learning about Indigenous, like, 
history and cultures. The Ho-Chunk tribe is super cool to learn about. Oh. Super cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, I, I could go, I, we don't need to go into all the details, and I would want to, like, verify and fact check to make sure I have everything right, because I've looked a lot into it. But because they're, um, the part of their land is near my mom's house. Oh. And it's super cool. So you should look into it if you find that stuff interesting. Just do a little Google search. You can find it all right away. All right. So, but we are talking about the Grand <laughs> oh, in yeah, Oshkosh, that's right. oh, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Grand Opera House opened its doors on August 9th of 1883. And its first production was The Bohemian Girl by C.D. Hess Opera House Company. A local architect named William Waters was chosen to design the building, as he had designed over 100 buildings in the city, including like a museum, public library. He was just very popular. Okay. It was built with a lavish and modern Victorian design, as they have, like when we'll get to the restorations later, they try to bring some of that back. So originally it was built with a lavish and modern Victorian design, hand-painted drop curtain, elaborately detailed walls, and a ceiling artistry of local artist J. Frank Waldo. Also had Roman influences evident in huge carved ceiling beams and columns, combined with the Queen Anne style in the auditorium. It basically, this is a long way of saying, it looked pretty freaking fancy. I love old theaters. They yes. were all so pretty. Pretty and fancy. Pretty and fancy. The uh, official capacity of the new theater was 921, although additional chairs could be comfortably added to accommodate crowds of more than 1,000, including jump seats, which I think are cool and we should bring back. These are seats that fold out from the walls and from the ends of seats to bring a total capacity up. And I was like, man, some venues should do that. That's super cool. That's way better than a folding chair. Yes, although it sounds like it might be a fire hazard. As long as you had the aisles clear enough, mm, you know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, old ass theaters did have fire problems, as a we've lot discussed. Of them, <laughs> I know. I was. I'm kind of waiting for you to tell me about a fire that destroyed this and killed a lot of people. No fire. No fire. Interesting. Yep. Is this the first one without a fire? Uh, the first theater that we've covered that didn't have like some sort of massive. There's not even like we'll we'll get to it, but there's no massive tragedy to account for these hauntings. Oh. Okay. It's just like so. Uh, the do, 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 do. oh, it's total possible seating after the jump seats and all the extra was one thousand two hundred twenty-four. I just thought that was interesting. It's that a large theater for how for how old it is. When did you say it was built? Eighteen eighty-three. Okay, okay. So the new theater attracted acts from around the country, according to the Grand's website. The unique acoustic quality of the hall which some has said to rival that of the huge Mormon tabernacle in Salt Lake City, brought considerable fame to Oshkosh. Vincent Price, Harry Blackstone, Sarah Bernhardt, Maude Adams, Celeste Holm, and President William Howard Taft were among the performers who performed at the Grand Opera House. In more recent years, the Smothers Brothers, Debbie Reynolds, and most recently, Jeff Daniels have graced the Grand Stage. Is that the puppet guy? Jeff Daniels? No, that's Jeff Dunham. Yeah, Jeff Daniels is like an actor who is also, I believe, can like sing. Oh, okay. Sorry, I I don't care for the puppets. <laughs> so I was like, is that the puppet guy? Well, I mean that that guy has his. I I don't find him funny, and it's it's always vaguely racist and shitty. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Uh, Jeff Daniels is the actor, musician, and playwright. You'll recognize him when you see him. He's from Dumb and Dumber. Oh, duh. Duh. Yes. He's I, the Dumb and Dumber guy that him. isn't Jim Carrey. <laughs> and I know him from things that are better than Dumb and Dumber. I don't, just because I don't think I could name any. Wait, was The Giver one of them? That sounds right. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, in 1918, the Opera House was purchased by W.G. Macy and W.D. Cummings. In the late 1920s, Mrs. Isabel Macy, widow of the previous owner, took the theater and closed it for several months for remodeling and redecorating, including adding modern heating, ventilation, lighting, the standard like plumbing, the stuff that you added in that time. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Macy sold the Opera House, then known as the Granada, to Sol Winokur for $40,000 in 1948. In today's money, that would be 507,371,000. And so that's still pretty damn cheap when you think about the fact that a normal house now goes for like 200 to 250,000. Right. That is it's cheap. unbelievably cheap. Yep. And she put in all the money for the restorations as well. well that's what it looks like. Oh, yeah. Okay. Winokur changed the name to the Civic Theater and reopened it as a motion picture house because that was big at the time. People were moving on to the the talkies. People really like those those fancy motion pictures. <laughs> in 1950, the building was renamed the Grand Theater by the new owners Frank Bloom and Mary Vetter. And in order to achieve the appearance of a modern movie theater, they did a redecoration of the outside. And uh, the building's entrance was moved from the center of the building to the corner. Kind of like, you know, there used to be a lot of corner movie theaters where they hmm. put the box office right in the center on the corner. Yeah. So they were trying to fit a more modern aesthetic. Um, And they also, like, moved a bunch of the stage stuff. Like, eight feet of the stage was removed to make room for additional seats. So they really, like, moved things around. But it only had, like, one viewing room, right? That's from everything I'm seeing still, yes. Okay. In 1969, F.J. Hauser and L.L. Cook bought the Grand Theater. They replaced the old coal furnace and the roof. Um, in the mid-1970s, two men from Rockford, Illinois, William Seaton and Morris Goldie, leased the building from Hauser and removed the plaster coverings that had covered the original features in the Grand's interior. At this point, local citizens, uh, headed by James and Joanne Alderson, were concerned about the building. Because even though people were coming in and leasing it and doing these repairs, mm-hmm. the actual building itself was falling into disrepair. It wasn't being very well maintained. So structurally, they weren't doing much. Right. Just aesthetically. So they formed a committee called Save the Grand. The fight to save the Grand lasted 20 years, faced numerous financial, civic, and organizational obstacles. But eventually, this committee had the building placed on both the state and national historic registers. It was purchased by the state, and they were able to start actual, like, maintenance as well, like, aesthetically and structurally. Awesome. Good. Good. The newly renovated Opera House hosted its reopening dedication and open house on September 27th, 1986. After nearly four years of expenditures of approximately $3.5 million, the building's restoration was complete. On October 3rd, 1986, the new Grand Opera House opened its doors the same way it had over a century before with a newly staged performance of The Bohemian Girl. Aw, I love that. Just bring it back around. It also underwent emergency repairs in 2009 to get the building up to code, you know, structural flaws, uh, upgraded sprinkler system, the normal stuff you deal with when having updated codes but not an updated building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that was part of a committee called Stand with the Grand, and those restorations cost about $2 million. So a lot of money has been put into this building. Yeah. The Grand has a current seating capacity of 550 that recreates the warm, intimate atmosphere of a European-style theater while showcasing some of the best talent today. This is from their website. Okay. <laughs> The Grand Oshkosh hosts nearly 125 public performances each year, including national touring artists, educational programs, performances by the Oshkosh Community Players, and the Oshkosh Symphony Orchestra, as well as performances by four area high schools, regional arts groups, performances presented by independent promoters, business meetings, and weddings. It's a busy place. It Lots sounds of people like a busy in and out place, there. yeah. So, we have a beautiful old building that has gone through a lot of remodels and renovations, Plus, it's a theater. Plus, it gets a lot of foot traffic. So you know what that means? Ghosts. I don't know, man. I'm waiting for you to give me the evidence because you already said that there is no big tragedy that would have caused the ghosts. No, and, and it has very specific ghosts. It's not like, like, nothing about this, and this is what I liked about it, nothing about this is sinister. Oh, you love a good... Happy ghost story. I do. I feel happy when there's happy ghosts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so most of this paranormal activity picked up during the renovations when they were doing, like, trying to get it on the National Historic Register. Oh, okay. So, like, that type of fixing up is when a lot of this stuff really came to light. Which we already know happens all the time. Right. The most popular ghost of the theater is that of... Percy Keene. Now, it's pretty well stated in most of my sources that this is Percy Keene. Though, when interviewed, when they when a, a newspaper interviewed two employees, they specifically said they don't name any of the ghosts because they don't know who they are for sure. But that might be like an employee ghost respect thing. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, But... Most of them said, this is Percy Keene. He had dedicated his life to the theater, working as a stage manager from 1895 until his death in 1967. So he stayed there through all the changes in ownerships. All Like, he was a constant. While so many things changed with this building, he was there. Okay. Now, they did not specify. They call, they said stage manager, but some sources said he is now like a ghostly stage manager. So I don't know that he actually was a stage manager in his life. I think it makes more sense that he would have been some sort of like a maintenance person or a books guy or something right. like that. Yeah, to be able to be so consistent. Especially when you made the move from theater to motion pictures, that kind of stuff. Right, you wouldn't really need a stage manager then. Mm-hmm. So he is a lovely spirit. He's made his presence known during the restoration by set up by Save the Grand, and he's stuck around since then. He is known as a friendly ghost. While he might startle you, because he just kind of pops up out of nowhere, <laughs> he his smiling face won't cause you any unease, and his eyes look friendly behind his glasses. He has been described as an average-sized man with a nicely trimmed haircut and round spectacles, and he's most often seen on the balcony or looking out a window onto the street. Aww. And so they kind of view him as somebody who used to work there and liked working there, obviously, because he spent most of his life doing it. Right. And decided to stick around. I love that. I love that. It's even said that he may be the person who saved a film student from harm by holding a fraying rope together. So. Percy. So a 
film student was uh, doing a shoot with others about the theater and doing a general film about haunted theaters. Okay. And so they had hoisted him up above the stage to film a scene, and he had been up there for, like, more than an hour. And when the assistant was lowering down, like, lowering this person down to the stage, the rope began fraying and falling apart, and it was doing it pretty quickly. And the student was still up high enough that they surely would have been injured if they fell from that height. Right. But without explanation, the rope like stopped fraying quickly and like held together for long enough to get them down to safety. Like magic. So they believe that it was the spirit of Percy who held the rope together until the danger was passed. Love it. Good job, Percy. <laughs> Another time during a sneak preview of a student film... Witnesses spotted Mercy Keene on the balcony, and they said it felt like a pleased and supportive energy. Oh. <laughs> right? Isn't that cute? It's so cute. <laughs> also, a lot of times I really dislike it when we have these ghost stories and someone continues to, like, work after their death. Yeah. It doesn't sound like he was doing what he did. No, I think he's, he's just, just hanging out. He's just hanging out. He's like, I like it here. Why yeah. would I leave? I like it. I don't have to keep doing my job. Why don't help people if I see it? Why do I need to go into the great beyond? That sounds boring. I'd rather hang out here and get free access to plays all of the time. That is so true. (laughs) So, as far as unidentified spirits in the theater goes, performers who have been on stage during rehearsals have reported seeing entities of people sitting in theater seats. Cute. So they're just there enjoying their practices. And when they go to investigate, the people are gone, but the seats where they were spotted were still pushed down. And you know how theater seats go. They, yeah. They're supposed to pop back up. Yeah. Or even if you don't have the kind that pop back up, typically after a performance, people will go with, like the ushers will go through and put up all the seats for like sweeping and all that other stuff. Right. There'd be no reason for these seats to be down. Right, especially if they coincide where they just saw someone. Exactly. Um, And one such entity was so pumped from the rehearsal that he had watched that he had to meet one of the actors. The actor found him waiting in the dressing room for him. He was wearing an old-fashioned clothing and appeared to be holding a playbill from an old-school play. And then he just disappeared. Kayla, I love this story. Right? As a theater, as, as ex-theater as theater kids, kids, this is... Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And when that those two employees were interviewed by the paper, which I have their name later, and I'll get to their names. Uh-huh. I have it later in the story. But I remember them specifically saying that while they give tours sometimes, uh, they point out, like, they had a little boy that said, hey, is that seat supposed to be down? And they were, like, not even phased. They're like, yeah, that just happens sometimes. Sometimes ghosts just chill and watch... For like watch rehearsals, so just ignore it. It's normal. They're just used to it at this point. I love it. Uh, people have heard footsteps coming up the staircase to the balcony, but when they head up there, there's no living person in that space. Uh-huh. A theater group called Drama Lab said that they heard slamming doors and footsteps during their performances. Obviously, if you are a theater person or even if you attend theater regularly everybody knows you don't stomp upstairs and you don't slam doors i was gonna say you tiptoe and you wear all black so no one can see you or hear you exactly 
The apparition of a man has been seen standing in the orchestra pit. Uh, he was seen by multiple set workers going through the door where the musicians uh, leave and enter into the pit. Uh-huh. When the set designers went to investigate to be like, hey, you can't, can't be, be down there. here. Yeah. Uh, there was no one there. And they swear that if it was a living person, they were following close enough behind that they would not have time to leave that area without being seen. When a director of a production was sitting by himself in the theater, just relaxing, doing some notes, he saw a vaporous orange mist float across the stage. Perhaps okay. uh, the ghost of an actor hoping to be like noticed for the part. Like, this is my big break. I've got the director alone. Now's the time for my solo. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he orange? I don't know. It just said orange mist. Okay. And you know what? That would be like, maybe they're, maybe it's a cat's thing. Maybe they're trying to sing Memory from Cats. <laughs> like, that's the song you solo to really get... No, it's not. Don't, don't, don't sing do Cats. It. No. I love Cats, but most people don't. If you want to get noticed in the theater, just give up on Cats. Actually, probably avoid most Andrew Lloyd Webber in general. It's got a weird stigma about it. You know what? I love me some good Les Mis. So do I. Wicked? No, I'm just saying, like, I was... I had said you know, the thing about cats. And then I was like, yeah, theater kids should probably just avoid. We all fall in love with Andrew Lloyd Webber, but to the extent that now it's so associated with like high school kids that I think right. regular theater people have a weird stigma about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just a newbie now. So the orange mist, that wasn't the only time it's been seen. Oh, uh, another theater, a theater employee said that another time people had come in one day and an orange mist was covering all of the seats and the stage. Like there was just a general floating orange mist. They had had a show that previous night, but it didn't involve any special effects. So there would have been no reason for a smoke machine or anything to be running that could account for what they were seeing. Who loves orange mist? <laughs> Kale loves, loves orange, orange mist. mist. <laughs> Is it true? So yeah, they had no account. It was just this weird orange mist covering the entire main hall. Okay. But what makes it interesting is that was the entire hall, but the time before with the director, it was just one thing that moved across the stage. I mean, I think the fact that it's orange is interesting enough. Oh yeah, absolutely. You don't even need to give me additional points as to why it's interesting. <laughs> um, additional activity includes lights that have been turned on and off by themselves throughout the theater. Weird temperature drops that some have experienced um, sometimes... It has been described that walking through an aisle can be compared to walking into a brick wall of cold. Oh. So it's not even like slight temperature drops. You're just like, right. boom, there it is. And what about non-human ghosts? A theater assistant said that while in the theater, she felt something move around her ankle. Is it a cat? Another time after that. A lighting director was taken aback to see a real-looking dog running on the stage. And he was like, what the hell? So he asked the actors like that were on the stage, he's like, right. get that dog out of here. And no one could find it. None of the crew or the actors had brought a dog with them to rehearsal that day. Nobody had any explanation. And since then, other actors have reported seeing a dog running around the theater as well. So they have a ghost pupper's. That's adorable. And if it had been a cat, I could see why they couldn't find it. But a dog. Pretty obvious. Yeah. And a dog's usually not trying to hide from you. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Cats will, you'll never find a cat. <laughs> they don't want to be found. Mm -mm. Not in a theater. Apparently, a lot of the ghostly activity has slowed down after the 2009 to 2010, like, upkeep. 
In November of 2022, staff writer for the Advanced Titan, Aubrey Selzmeyer, interviewed two employees at the Grand, uh, director's assistant Amber Hammond and community relations manager Molly Templin. Hammond told Selzmeyer, during construction, we had the crew and building operation guys around, and we just kept asking them if they had seen anything, and the answer was always no. Mm -hmm. So they were like, well, that's weird because it's pretty prominent. We see it a lot. So they had asked a paranormal investigators for a reason, and after doing some investigation, they hypothesized that the spirits present are not showing themselves as much because they're happy. Because they are less restless because the spirits enjoy seeing their home being kept nice and beautiful. I can see that. Also, like, they're just there to enjoy the play. Yep. Uh, They're not there to cause ruckus. Templin spoke of another ghost they have seen that wasn't listed in my other resources. Uh, They have named her Rose because she has been seen wearing a pink dress most commonly. She also can be seen in a blue dress, but most commonly it's pink. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is a lady that hangs out in the balcony, and she has been heard laughing during dress rehearsals when there is no one at all in the audience. Hopefully it's during funny scenes. Otherwise, (laughs) Rose, that's rude. And they also have a potential explanation for the doggo ghost. Okay. Um, Quote, the Grand has gone through multiple renamings over the years. When it was an adult movie house back in the day, the manager of the theater lived in apartments above the Grand's original entrance. Unfortunately, he had a dog who passed away in his apartment. So now that dog roams the theaters all the time and can occasionally be heard scattering around the cement in the basement, unquote. I'm I'm sad that he's in the basement, but. Well, but he's also up in the theater. I think he just goes where he wants to go. Mm -hmm. Hammond shared her personal experience with uh, the paper with her favorite spirit who resides in the theater, a little boy who has a soft spot for women of the theater. I often use dousing rods to communicate with the spirits, Hammond said. I firmly believe that when I go down to the basement, the spirit of this little boy touches my arms. We call him our prankster ghost. Cute. Hammond said the coolest thing that happened with her and the little boy occurred just over a month ago while she was giving a tour. Um, She said, as I was walking during the tour, a white outline walked directly across the hallway in front of me. People will often report that they see shadow figures during their visits to the Grand, but this was not that. It was more like a white outline of him, and I actually had to stop the tour because I'd never seen anything like it. Hammond said that during their theater ghost tours, they have gotten the little boy to move objects for the guests, such as a bat decoration that hangs from the ceiling. And some have been helpful, like the uh, Mr. Keen was with saving that student. Because Templin said that back in 2009, before the like upkeep restorations, mm-hmm. The ceiling almost collapsed in 2009, and one of our spirits was seen previously up at the very back corner of the balcony, pointing towards where the structure was failing, but nobody knew what he was pointing to. So he was like, he's like, hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention. Yep. And so Hammond had a good quote in that article, and I think it's worth a share and a good way to end my story this week. Okay. We always tell our guests that the theater is a place for imagination. So if you believe in ghosts, we have them. The whole point is to let your imagination run a little wild while you're here, and we encourage you to. And that is the story of the Grand in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Girl, that was such a good heartwarming story. Yeah, I was like, it's been a while since we've done a happy one. I'd like to do a happy one. I know, usually it's me that does it. I know, it was, it was wild. 
I'm ready to like use my intimidating voice. And then you're like, no, nope, nope. Look Percy how cute it is. And Rose and the little jokester kid. And then the little doggo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, they're just happy ghosts, just happy to be in the theater. Watching which I mean, plays. honestly, of all the different uh, clicky stereotypes you can attach to somebody. Oh, for sure. Theater kids, I 100% believe, will stick around the theater after death. Like, I still miss my high school theater department. And that was like 15-some years ago. I still remember what it smells like. So do I. It didn't smell good. Well, Not, well I was the makeup have... master, so the makeup has like such a positive smell, and that's really what the theater smelled like to me. Well, and when I say it didn't smell good, it's just we were a very old theater department in my high school with zero budget. Oh. So everything was reused. Everything. Years. Costumes. Decades. Literally, we took apart wood sets that we built uh-huh. and then reused the wood so many times that we, like, figured out special ways to get get the old strip screws out. Oh. Because they no longer, like, because that was a spot we needed to screw and there was a screw from, like, 10 productions ago that we needed to get out. It was It was a whole thing. Or we'd be like, well... Mr. T, we got to, like, just cut, like, this, can we just cut all the pieces, like, an inch so I can get this one screw off of, <laughs> just the whole thing would be shorter by one inch. We had zero budget. Everything was just what was left over. It smelled like old wood, old costumes, um, and dust, and I don't, I guess, I don't know a better way to say it other than it smelled old, but it was comforting. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Ours was really fancy. It was only <laughs> like a decade old when I got there. So, so on a skeptic scale of para to normal, uh-huh. para being five, normal being one, what will you give the grand in Oshkosh? Dude, I'm going to give it a four. Okay, okay, okay. Because, oh my Oshkosh, that sounds so fun. Oshkosh, ba- bagosh, I want it to be a four. I think I'm going to go three. Because like you said, there is no tragedy to explain him being there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do the middle ground. Okay. Because I do believe that theater kids are passionate enough to still stick around even without a tragedy being like a reason for them to be there. I mean, I feel like if you go there enough and then you you pass away, whether tragically or just naturally, and you're like, you know what, what do I do now? I think, you know, I love the theater. Yep. I'm gonna go there <laughs> that's where i'm gonna go love it so yeah i'm sticking with my four all right happy 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 joy joy happy I'm in. happy joy joy what do you got for me this week well tonight i'm gonna tell you about the san pedro haunting i have never heard of this i am so excited that that was your answer <laughs> <laughs> i literally have do you know anything about this <laughs> It's bananas. <laughs> B-A-N-A-N-A-S. So I watched a very low budget documentary on it from 1996 called An Unknown Encounter, The True Account of the San Pedro Haunting. Uh, this is actually ended up being one of my main sources, uh, the rest of which will, of course, be on the website. All right. All right. So our story starts out in the fall, winter of 1988. A young Good mo- year. It's a great year. Is that when you were born? Yes. <laughs> uh, a young mother by the name of Jackie Hernandez left her rocky marriage and set out on her own to create a better life for her, her two-year-old son, Jamie, and her second child, who she was pregnant with at the time. Okay. 
first of all, bold move. Happy Love for her. Love it for her. Love it. Girl, recognize your worth. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so in November of that year, she moved into a small bungalow in San Pedro, California. And it didn't take long before Jackie began to realize that there was something weird about her new house. Okay. So at first, she just didn't feel like she was alone in the house. She said in an interview that she had always been afraid to be alone, not because of ghosts, but because she was worried about someone breaking in. Mm -hmm. When she moved into the San Pedro house, at first, she felt a kind of comfort in this presence that seemed to be looking after her. From the beginning, she would tell her neighbor, Susan, about these feelings. And at first, Susan just thought that it was Jackie growing. Uh, she was becoming more confident in herself and that this reassuring presence was basically just in her head. But like a reassuring, like she wants to have something to blame for it. Like, why else would I feel this reassured? Exactly. And Susan is like, no, no girl, girl you're that's just, you. You're just happy now. Yeah. You're getting confidence, which, hey, I'm not against there being a ghost giving a reassuring presence. But I think Susan, that makes sense. I would probably be where Susan's at in my head. Yeah, and Susan basically decided that, you know, even though she didn't think it was a present, she just thought that Jackie was feeling more confident. She said, though, that if Jackie felt something was looking out for her, that that was good as well. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. great, as long as she feels great. That is, as Susan would say, until the manifestations really started. Ooh. Until it really started showing itself to her. Ooh. If you hear me turning the pages, it's because I ran out of printer paper and this is printed on cardstock. (laughs) It's very thick. (laughs) It would be a really good fan for when this room gets even hotter. (laughs) So the activity in the house started out small. She saw her cat seemingly chasing unexplained shadows. She thought she heard voices muttering in the attic. And once, while walking past a desk in the living room, a couple of pencils knocked over onto the floor, though she could have sworn that she was nowhere near the desk to have accidentally bumped into it. So standard, easygoing haunting stuff so far. Exactly. Exactly. In February of 1989, Jackie got out of bed to use the bathroom. As she was walking past her son Jamie's room, she saw the apparition of an old man sitting on Jamie's bunk bed. Nope. Quote, Every time I've seen him, he's always been cross-legged. He looks like a corpse. He's got a grayish tone to him. He's wearing a flannel red shirt. His shirt is tucked in and his pants are high waters. They're like old gasoline gas attendant pants, Jackie said in an interview later that year. Listen here, old man. Stay out of the kids' rooms. That's just a general rule. I don't know why they always go for the kids. Because they can see them easier. I yeah, get but the it. Mom but saw. Just stay away from the kids. Just stay away from the kids. Get out of the kids' room, old man. That's creepy behavior. We don't stand for it here. For reals. At first, she th- just assumed that it was her imagination, perhaps a mild hallucination brought on by her pregnancy. But after her daughter, Samantha, was born in April of 1989, the activity only seemed to increase. And not just in front of Jackie. Her friends, as well as her neighbor, Susan, witnessed objects moving on their own. Once, a painting was hanging in the kitchen. It flew off the wall and landed on the countertop. Oh, so we're getting more violent. Uh Uh-huh. Another time, Susan was at the house and experienced a lamp inexplicably (laughs) fly off of a side (laughs) table 
and crashed to the floor. Another friend, Darlene, who was watching Jamie and Samantha one night, claimed to have heard a voice tell her, don't come in here. Don't come in here. In reference to entering another room that was just off the living room. Quote, he was real spooky, you know, real scary. (laughs) It made me feel like it would be violent if I did. Dude, old man's got to control himself. He's being unreasonable. That's the babysitter. She has to go places. You know, she wasn't even getting paid for it, I don't think. I think she was, Jackie was just out of town, and Darlene's like, yeah, yeah, I'll hang out with your kids. You're a single mom. I'll hang out with your kids and help you out. Yeah. Yeah. With each new incident, Jackie became more and more fearful of what was in her house. Understandable. Especially after one particularly terrifying incident in the attic. And I don't really know why she was in the attic. There wasn't much up there. But likely it was to investigate what was causing some of the noises. So she crawled up into the attic while she was looking around when she felt something behind her. So she turned around quickly and saw a disembodied head coming right at her. She understandably freaked Freaked out out. uh, and jumped back down to the main floor laundry room as quickly as she could. One day, Susan told Jackie about a group of parapsychologists that she had seen on local TV. Jackie decided to give them a call. Okay. And here enters Dr. Barry Taff. And he was a parapsychologist with over 2,500 cases of the paranormal that he had investigated. Okay. Barry Conrad, who is an Emmy Award winning photojournalist and TV cameraman. Nice. And then Jeff Wheatcraft, who was a photographer. Apparently, he used to be a teacher and then decided to be a photographer. And that's all we know about him. Man, people, like, those teachers' salaries just aren't cutting it. Everybody's no. leaving teaching for something different. And in the 1980s, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the team's first time visiting the San Pedro house was on the night of August 8th, 1989. Two days before my birthday. Uh, they interviewed Jackie and Susan. They filmed the house, the rooms. They walked around the house to see if they could feel anything. And Barry Taft would say in the 1996 documentary, An Unknown Encounter, Quote, the first thing that was apparent was that there was a particular odor in the house. A foul stench. Ooh. Rude. Very rude. Like, when they say foul stench, like rotting something, eggs, um, like sulfurous, or like old man smell. Because we all know that smell. He's probably that old man who hangs out in his your that's kid's like, bedroom. That's like, like normally, if we're talking haunting, I tend to lean like I'm imagining a sulfurous smell. But I'm like, is right, it that old right. man or smell? Or rotting meat. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, is it that old man smell? You know, they didn't actually describe the smell. Oh, they okay. just said that her house smelled foul. <laughs> smelled like chickens. Or ducks. <laughs> Get it? Because they're foul. But um, I know. It was too funny. <laughs> Uh, he goes on to say that the awful smell was reminiscent of an entity in another one of his cases that occurred around 1974, called uh, often called the Doris Bither case. Oh, that's on my list. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I said it was. I, I was going to put it on my list, but if you already have it, then yeah, the the Doris Bither. Haunting. Yeah. I haven't done all the research yet because it's hard and long. So that's maybe I should do that sooner rather than later since we're connected and all together. Yeah, you should. So this Barry 
Taft guy. He was the guy who did the Doris Bither case. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Which was the inspiration for a movie called The Entity. Yep. And it was a particularly nasty haunting. I just glanced at it. I was thinking about describing it, and then I was like, no. The other, I want it to be a surprise. The other word for the Doris Bither haunting is the entity haunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So this this group of men came to help her, and mm-hmm. this photographer named Jeff Wheatcraft, who was really in his early days of paranormal investigating, because, you know, he used to be a teacher. Yeah. Uh, and he considered himself a true skeptic. But he was actually really the first person on the team to feel something oh, at the house. Okay. And not to give too much away, but poor Jeff really goes through it with this case. <laughs> or poor, poor Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> poor Jeff. You're gonna you're gonna I'm gonna tell you some stories and you're gonna be like, oh poor Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> poor Jeff. All right. So the group is talking to Jackie and Susan, and Jackie tells them about the disembodied head story. And so Jeff was like, first of all, he's like, mm, mm-hmm, okay, you saw a disembodied head in the attic. And then he's <laughs> like, all right, well, let's just go check out the attic then. Classic uh, horror movie move. I know. I know. So Jeff was the first one to go up into the attic. And he said, similar to what Jackie said, that there wasn't really much up there. Uh, but as he was walking around, he had an overwhelming feeling of being watched. Like something was just behind him. Exactly what Jackie said. Yep. Waiting for the head to pop up. Uh, Another team member suggested that Jeff bring his camera up and take some pictures over his shoulder. And he got through maybe two or three photos when suddenly his camera was ripped from his hands. Ah! Everyone in the laundry room, which was like just right under the attic door, heard Jeff scream. And he crawls down to them and he's freaking out and he's shaking and eventually they get him to calm down a bit. So he goes back up into the attic, you know, to get his camera. And the first time he went up there, it was pitch black. So when he went up the second time, he brought a flashlight so he could find his camera. And he's looking around for his camera when he sees the lens over on one side of the attic and then the body of the camera face down in a small crate on the other side of the attic. Neither of them were anywhere near where he had been standing when it suddenly got ripped out of his hands. So it's not like he just dropped it. And then they like scattered. Right. Right. So Plus if I recall correctly, camera lenses don't come off that easy. No, they really don't. They don't. I was going to point to mine, but I don't know. Oh, it's right there. It's right there. Yeah. Right up there. Right up there. <laughs> right there. <laughs> uh, for some reason, though, they kept going into the attic. <laughs> And I don't know why. (laughs) The next time Barry Conrad, the cameraman, went up with Jeff. And Barry kept having issues with his camera dying once he got up there. He'd come back down. It would work. He'd go back up. It wouldn't. And then, poor Jeff. Uh, Jeff got pushed. And not, like, touched on the back, but, like, physically shoved. Which Barry did not get on film because the camera didn't work up there. But he did watch it happen. And he saw Jeff absolutely freak out. So they immediately climbed out of the attic. And this is also a phenomenon that Jackie had claimed to have experienced uh, like two times or so before that she would be kind of just standing there and then she'd feel something push her aggressively. Well, I don't blame the thing for shoving him. At this point, they've been in and out, in and out. Like get in or get out. Keep the door closed. What are you doing? What are you doing? 
Exactly. You're letting out my musty attic smell. <laughs> so Jeff and Barry come down. Everyone's back in the kitchen when they hear a loud pounding coming from the attic. And what's really interesting about this particular case is that they had a photographer, they had a cameraman, and all of the stuff that's happening on the main floor and maybe half of what's happening in the attic is being filmed. So in the documentary, you're actually watching the original real footage of what people are experiencing. Oh, cool. It's very cool. They have no reenactments. It's just the actual people experiencing it in real time. I love it. So you can see when Jackie climbs up onto the washing machine to close the attic hatch. And you can see her pull her hand back, like, very suddenly, and saying that something grabbed the hatch out of her hand. And then you can hear the sound of footsteps walking back and forth in the attic. (sighs) For, girl, I don't know why. I think Jeff is just a glutton for punishment. (laughs) But before they call it a night, he sticks his head back up into the attic. Stop. And what and he sees what he describes as three large lights. They kind of come out of nowhere, they zoom around and then they disappeared. And then after the lights disappeared, because there's a little bit of light that's coming in from the laundry room below, he sees a large black mass, which he says was the size of three men slowly moving through the attic and then it just slowly fades away. So unexplained lights moving around. So we're thinking aliens. No. Oh, damn it. They're just little lights. I was going to say, you never cover aliens, Brittany. I know, I know. (laughs) I don't know why they'd be in an attic, though. (laughs) Where did Elliot keep E.T.? In his bedroom. Closet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the lights that he saw in the attic continue to pop up throughout the investigation. People see them in real life, in the video, in the pictures, and I know... That in general, when it comes to like orbs, we're pretty skeptical. Yeah. Uh, Just because they can be so easily explained by dust. And bugs. And bugs. Exactly. But one thing that folks analyzing these photos and of course those who are seeing them in real time keep bringing up is that whatever these objects are, they appear to be producing their own light. One instance where Jackie and a friend of hers, like Jackie's taking pictures of it. She calls the investigators. This is several days later, um, and they describe it as almost being gelatinous and and being able to pull apart and then come back together again. Jello. But a luminescent. <laughs> luminescent jello. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Uh, they are not reflecting, like, light shining on them. They are the light, which experts in my sources bring up again and again, is really something that pretty much only occurs with lightning bugs. Fireflies. Yep. Uh, However, they are not found in this area. So it's not likely to be fireflies. Also, they appear to be much bigger than fireflies. Plus, fireflies cannot, like, form a blob together and then pull apart and then form a blob together. Yeah, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a firefly. They are ugly when they're not, like, (laughs) flying around glowing. Yeah. And if you kill a firefly, it glows for a second and then it's dead. Well, uh, we said nothing about smashing into these lights. No, I'm just saying, like, because, like you said, pull apart, put oh, back together. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, not yeah. going to happen yeah. with Firefly. Yeah, and but they just kept flying around after it pulled apart again. Yeah. Besides all of that, the recordings of these lights also show that they don't move like bugs or dust. 
most of the time they have a very specific trajectory, like a, a straight line. Uh, in the documentary, they even put a grid over the screen, like a very small squared grid. Okay. And it's following a exact angle. Oh, okay. Which is not something that bugs do. Uh, and also, or if they do like move around, they're, they really loop around super smoothly. So they're not scattered and like, like choppy, which yeah. is how bugs normally move. Anyway, another weird thing that happens in the house, which Jackie had mentioned the first time that the team was there, uh, but was actually witnessed and filmed when they came back a couple weeks later, is an ooze that drips from the walls. Blech. And I have pictures of this. One second. Okay. Yeah. This is a, a built-in cabinet. And where there is a, like, two boards are put together, there's this ooze that's kind of dripping through. And it's, like, a gross color. It looks like snot. Snot. That still looks like snot and is gross and is more of it. I don't like that. Yeah, it's kind of just puddled in the corner of some built-in furniture. And it's a a little bit more liquidy than snot. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's got ooze. the coloration yeah. of, like, snot when you have a cold. Yeah, it's not great. It's no. really not great. When the team saw this happen, they collected samples and sent it to a lab to be analyzed. What do you guess that it was? Snot. What's your second guess? Um, like, some form of a mold. Okay. Okay, that seems reasonable. Like a liquid mold? Because some mold, some mold is, like, gross and puddly. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, upon analysis, it was determined to be human blood plasma. What? With a high copper and iodine content. And you know what? Thinking back on it, because I do donate plasma, mm-hmm. that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Like, that looks like plasma. Uh-huh. And there's no reason plasma should be <laughs> dripping from your walls. No. And very specifically based upon the analysis, it was male human in origin. Okay. Okay. So the team tried to figure out, you know, like where the ooze was coming from. Um, That was actually blood plasma. And at first, before they knew that it was plasma, they thought maybe it was dripping from a pipe. Like maybe it was uh, like a really watered down, like rust water mix. Um. Basically just anything other than coming from the walls. Mm-hmm. But they could not figure out where it could be coming from. Even before they knew that it was human plasma, they're like, we don't understand where this is originating from. Like, even if it had been something like mold, which could potentially be explainable, right. why would there be mold? And why is it dripping in these particular places? And where's the origin of it? Yep. So it was everywhere. And it happened repeatedly throughout their investigation, not just this one time. This was just the first time that they ever saw it. About a month after their first investigation, with various members spending days at a time trying to come up with some sort of explanation for the phenomenon, Jackie was once again finally alone in the house. And uh, things kicked up. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. That's what that needed. I know. Objects like her children's toys were being thrown across the room. They were levitating. So she called the team in an absolute panic. And you can, in the documentary, hear her voicemail where she was like, you guys, I cannot stay here. I cannot stay here. In the documentary, she said that she was so scared she was ready to hop in her car and drive until she ran out of gas. Uh, Because she was 
so broke. She mm-hmm. had no money. She had nowhere to go, but she needed to get as far away as possible from this house. The team said that they would come and get her. But as Jackie was very annoyed by when they got there, they just grabbed their equipment and then went into the house. And she was hoping they'd take her away, away. from the house. <laughs> Instead, they're like, no, let's investigate. She was I like, suppose no. that's, I mean, that's, that's not their motivation. That's not what they're there for. That's not what's going to get them money for a documentary. Exactly. So Jackie said that she had been hearing breathing throughout the house. Voices coming from the attic. There was moaning. There were books that were flying around like frisbees. Doors were slamming on their own. Lights were going on and off. And when the guys first got there, though, everything seemed fine. They walked around and everything seemed calm and chill. And then, for some unknown reason, Jeff and another guy climbed back up into the attic. Oh, God. Stay out of the attic. Jeff. Specifically. Come on, man. Especially Jeff. Jeff was the last one who had been up there, so he wanted to see if anything had been moved because she'd been hearing so many sounds coming from the attic. So they're up in the attic. Everything seems fine. Again, there isn't really anything up there other than this great packing crate that Jeff's camera had landed in. So it's not like anyone could be hiding or anything. Yeah. After about five to ten minutes of just walking around, cameraman Barry sticks his head into the attic and asks if the guys had just shown a light down through the attic hole thing, doorway, you know. Uh, now Jeff and this other guy who, I'm so sorry, I don't, I didn't catch his name. Okay. Um, but Jeff and this other guy had with them a flashlight as well as a small 35 millimeter camera, but Jeff, who had the flashlight, was nowhere near like the opening to the attic. So they're like, no, that wasn't us. But Barry said that he had just seen this light flash by him. And then almost immediately after that, heard what sounded like someone snapping their fingers next to his ear. Like three snaps. Stay away from my ear. But it wasn't just Barry. Jackie, Susan, and the rest of the team, they all heard it. And you can see their reactions in the film. So they were like, hey, guys, I think there's something down here. (laughs) You guys need to come down now. (laughs) So the guy with no name, you know, let's just call him Bob (laughs) because I don't know his name. So Bob starts walking towards the attic entrance and to go down to see what's happening in the laundry room. Jeff is back near the center of the attic, and Jeff starts to take a step towards the door when suddenly he calls out, John! Bob looks back, which he might be John, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to stick with Bob. Bob looks back, and he sees Jeff hanging from a rafter. Ah! I'm going to pull up the photo, and I need you to describe it for the listeners. Okay. Okay, second one. Okay. Okay, so first of all, Jeff looks like somebody that should not be going into attics. Like, he looks like the person who is destined to be the victim of a haunting. And it's literally some weird cord thing is wrapped around his throat, and he's, like, holding himself up by one of the beams below the rafter. It doesn't look like he's in immediate danger, but something definitely meant him harm. Because there's no better way to go. Like, there's no better way to phrase that than 
He could obviously pick himself up, but something is obviously wrapped around his neck and around the beam trying to choke him. That was a that was a really good description. So Bob, Bob slash John, uh, walks up to him, Jeff, and he sees that he's standing at a 45 degree angle and he's attached to a nail. Like he had been lifted up and onto the nail. And Bob, possibly John, uh, says that he actually had to bend the nail down in order to get Jeff off of it. It oh, was wow. so high up, it was literally as if someone had picked up Jeff and just hung him up. When Jeff climbs down from the attic, everyone notices that he has a piece of clothesline around his neck. And that that is actually what had caught onto the nail. They don't know where the clothesline came from. There was nothing like that in the attic. Uh, but, you know, there was just that small crate. And by this time, they had looked over the entire thing. So they knew it didn't come from the attic. So, yeah. And also, how did it get around Jeff's neck? Jeff had no memory of this happening. He basically blacked out after he started walking towards the attic entrance and didn't regain consciousness until he found himself basically being strangled. Oh, my God. So I'm going to show you a little clip from this documentary. Uh, the thing I remember most about the, the hanging incident with Jeff Recraft was, was just how fast it happened. I mean, it was in just, just a fraction of a second. I had taken maybe two or three steps away from him, and then bang, you know, he had called out, and there he was. What's wrong? What happened? People asked me, you know, why did I take these pictures? Why I didn't run help him? Because when I took the pictures, I couldn't see. I was just, just practical, you know, trying to go and get to him and be able to see to get to him. He was, like, very, very stiff. And, again, I couldn't figure out why was he there in this position. So it wasn't until I got, like, right up on him and looked from, like, the side that I could see that, uh, that this rope was around his neck. Ugh, that call to, that call out. John! Ugh, that, that's scary. Yeah. I don't like that at all. Yeah. Ugh. So you could see the rope. Yeah. And the clothesline and what? Yeah, when he climbs down out of the attic, you can see it around his neck. And they're like, what is that? What do you have around your neck? And he's like, what are you talking about? And then he reaches up and he's like, I don't know what this is. I didn't put this on me. So that is not the worst thing that happens to Jeff. Poor Jeff. Dude, I'm saying Jeff. <laughs> well, and <laughs> I said really he does look like it. somebody who would be haunted. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, he really does. Uh, but unfortunately, you are going to have to wait. Until next week to find out what happened. Man, that time is a bitch. Just flies on by. I'm excited for next week, though. <laughs> so if that's not the craziest thing. That's not the craziest thing that happened. Uh, poor Jeff. Poor <laughs> Jeff. I'm going to say. Poor, poor Jackie. Jackie. Yeah, yeah. Poor Jackie's kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think. Hopefully they'll- they're young enough that this stuff doesn't stick with them. Right. You know. You know, you have a, a two-year-old and a, at newborn. this point, yeah, just like three months old. Yep. So we're just going to hope that they don't, they just have to hear about this eventually, but never remember it. I know. Gross. I hope that, I really hope that Jamie does not remember that guy sitting on the edge of his bed. Well, I don't remember anything from being two years old, so I'm just going to hope it's the same way for him. Fingers crossed. Well, because there's a two-parter, uh, we will wait to rate. I don't know. How are you feeling right now? Can we? Can I get an update on your feels? So right far? now, I'm leaning four. Okay, I'm leaning four. 
Okay. Because part of me is like, okay, they are filming all this. So like, are they, how much are they doing for attention? But it seems pretty like there's not a lot of explanation even for the stuff that they would be doing for attention. So I'm leaning for. I will say, because this, this gives good context, the documentary was not, like they were not filming for a documentary. They were just filming they for were, investigation. They were filming for evidence in investigation. Okay. And so this happened in 1989, and then the documentary is from 1996, and it's by a different guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Obviously, like the the main guy, Barry, Barry Taff, mm-hmm. uh, he was involved in it, but that's because it's all his footage. Yeah. So he, they, in order to get that footage, they have to talk yep. to him. And yep. they, they interviewed everyone who was there as well. But yeah, they, they did not film this for the documentary. They just, they all kind of thought, and Barry actually says at one point, he's like, most of, most of the hauntings I investigate, those like 2,500, they're, they're, they're not nothing. real. They're not real. It, it ranges from, you know, miscommunication, uh, just fear mongering and a lot of fraud. He's like, this and the, the entity one, he's like, these are the most legit that I've literally ever seen. Absolutely. Ugh. All right, well, we have no listener story for you this week. If you would like to submit a listener story, we would love to hear it. Oh, love it. We love listener stories. We love suggestions for locations, especially with the upcoming Urban Legends October. Oh, yeah. So, you know, any of that you want to throw out there. Uh, Have you seen a UFO? Have you seen a ghost? We want to hear about it. You can do so by submitting us an email, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. Or you can go to our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. Or you can get there through the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic, and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. All right, well, it's time to get out of this hot-ass podcasting room. (laughs) It's so warm. (laughs) This is what it was supposed to be like in July. I know. Like, we were wearing hoodies in July. Why is it like this now? It's September. It's dumb. I don't like it. (laughs) The weather needs to stop being such a freaking jerk. Yeah. Stop being a jerk, weather. God. I know, and I like how we're complaining, and it's like 80 degrees outside, whereas most of the country has been in the hundreds all summer. I know. But also, and it also feels also a little sacrilegious because I know in about three months I would be loving this weather. No, I love a good fall, fall day. Three months. Okay. So we'll be in, I the, mean, we'll yes. be in the winter time by then and you don't like winter. No, but I'm, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I will, I would appreciate this day in the middle of like the negative 67 degrees <laughs> with the wind chill. <laughs> Well, we want to thank you all for joining us this spooky Wednesday. Be sure to come back next week for part two of Brittany's story. Part two. Happy spooky Wednesday. Happy spooky Wednesday. Okay. Bye. 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 I love that you show your range now. Every goodbye. Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!